Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. about some solar system fireworks from author and planetary geophysicist Simon Morden. But first, some of the recent news in science. When American astronauts first walked on the moon over 50 years ago, they took photos, they planted a flag, and they collected moon rocks. Collecting moon rocks may sound as frivolous as picking up pebbles on a beach, but bringing back rocks from the faraway world of the moon offered valuable data to scientists and geologists. Rocks hold a stable record about the minerals and chemicals that make up a moon, an asteroid, a planet. Analyzing them can help scientists determine whether a distant world harbors water, whether it had or has the right stuff to give birth to life, and whether it has minerals and chemicals that we could mine to make air and shelter for humans, or to make rocket fuel for getting back to Earth. So, non-Earth rocks can provide information, and since the moon didn't have any UPS drop-off boxes, the way to get them was for astronauts to get them, a very expensive, very dangerous process. These are reasons why the Mars sample mission might be a big deal in the efforts to understand the red planet and to maybe send humans to live there someday. Reading from the NASA website, quote, The Mars Sample Return is a proposed mission to return samples from the surface of Mars to Earth. The mission would use robotic systems and a Mars Ascent rocket to collect and send samples of Martian rocks, soils, and atmosphere to Earth for detailed chemical and physical analysis. The mission is being planned jointly with the European Space Agency. No date is set for this mission, and so far only artist drawings show what the robotic sampler robot might look like. But in a notable next step, NASA recently announced that it has selected 16 people to guide just how the sample rock information from Mars will be shared and explained for the rest of the world to understand. The scientists include Colorado geologist Catherine French. French is with the U.S. Geological Survey's Central Energy Resources Science Center in Denver. This USGS agency typically looks for where fossil fuel reserves may be hidden around the Earth. So what their role will be in this mission is not yet clear. The first meeting of the Mars Sample Return Research Group took place last week. We hope to have Catherine French on sometime in the future to tell us more about the mission. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And when you get samples returned from Mars or other bodies, it is important to have context of where those samples came from so you can understand how representative they are of the body or the region. For example, on planets and moons, did the sample come from a more volcanic region? Or perhaps an area that shows evidence of past water or erosion or other processes? For missions that fly through a comet's coma, are the dust samples perhaps from a jet releasing particles from the interior of the comet? 
Or, for samples from an asteroid surface, are they from a smooth or rocky region? So an important part of choosing locations for your sample return is having a good global map of the body so you know how common or unique is each site. For Mars, there are two recent reports of work to more fully map the planet. First, there is the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been studying Mars for nearly 17 years. It carries an instrument called the Compact Reconnaissance Imaging Spectrometer for Mars, or CRISM, which is used to map the mineralogy of the surface, particularly looking for mineral and chemical evidence of the past or present existence of water on the surface of Mars. CRISM will be shut down soon, but will complete its task with the release of a map of Mars with over 51,000 images, creating a 5.6 gigapixel map. The map, to be released in batches over the next six months, will cover 86% of the red planet, revealing dozens of key minerals found on its surface. By looking at mineral distribution, scientists can better understand Mars's watery past and can prioritize which regions need to be studied in more depth, including for sample returns. The other Mars mapping news from last week was that China's first successful interplanetary mission, the Tianwen-1 orbiter, has completed a year of observing Mars, completing a map of the entire planet. The map includes China's first photographs of the Martian South Pole, where a majority of the planet's water might be located. The chief designer of the Tianwen-1 Mars Orbiter gave a presentation at Nanjing University saying that China is preparing a mission to launch in 2028 that will return Mars samples to Earth in July 2031. We look forward to these and many other sample returns to tell us more about how the solar system formed and what resources might be available for human explorers. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. The history of Mars is drawn not just on its surface, but also down into its broken bedrock and up into its frigid air. Most of all, it stretches back into deep time, from the planet's formation 4.5 billion years ago, through eras that featured cataclysmic meteor strikes, explosive volcanoes, and a vast ocean that spanned the entire upper hemisphere, to the long frozen ages that saw its atmosphere steadily thinning and leaking away into space. Planetary geologist Dr. Simon Morden presents a tantalizing vision of our nearest neighbor, its dramatic history and astonishing present. Welcome to the show, Simon. I'm speaking today with Simon Morden, author of The Red Planet, A Natural History of Mars. And indeed, it is a natural history going all the way back to the beginning of the solar system. So good to talk to you, Simon. And um, I have to say, this is a really fascinating book from the perspective of a biologist who knows very little about planetary science. So I'm excited to talk to you about this. Thank you, Beth. I love the short chapters because it gives you time, it gives the reader time to get a, a specific 
concept, a short history in the story of Mars, and then think about it, and then you know use that to build for the next chapter. So I really like that format. That's, I mean, I wrote this book um, during our first national lockdown, and uh, it certainly it certainly took my mind off of all the, the terrible things that were happening outside of the front door. Just to whisk myself off to Mars every day, it was um, it was a real treat. Yeah, that would be a great escape, I must say. And it was it was truly an escape for me from like the normal day-to-day -day reality of life, thinking about the origin of our solar system, which I hadn't realized was such an unusual solar system. I mean, I've heard of extraterrestrial planets and I'm remarked, I've remarked on how amazing it is that we can detect rocky planets at faraway stars, but I didn't realize that the configuration of our solar system with the rocky planets in close to the sun was very unusual. It's something that has just been really becoming apparent over the last few years. Before the advent of, of the big um, orbital satellites, uh, uh, telescopes that uh, that would would look, you know, far into the uh, into the universe and, and see other planets around other stars, we only knew about one solar system, which was our own. So we just assumed that all solar systems around all other stars were like ours. It turns out that we're the really unusual one and everybody else fits more or less the same pattern, that you have even-sized planets that are evenly spaced uh, in distance from their, from their primary star, uh, and they're also all a lot closer to their sun than, than than our planets are so it's been you know the estimate is we we are literally one in ten thousand that's right it's, it's, it's yes yes genuinely astonishing figure and i think though those odds are going to increase the more solar right. systems we look at right and like so many of the mysteries of mars itself it, this one isn't really well understood, am I right in, in thinking that? No one has any particular idea about how these things happen. We have a general theory about how solar systems form. You have a big gassy cloud, um, which is then slowly collapsing into a central star surrounded by a disk of, of dust and gas and debris. Um, and as far as we know, all solar systems start that way. But what happens in that disk is, is a bit of a mystery. We know it has to go through certain stages. So we know that the dust has to start sticking to each other. Uh, and form little blobs, um, which we still find in meteorites today. So we know that's definitely a thing. Uh, little blobs are called chondrules, which are like little glassy beads of, of a few millimeters across. But no one quite knows how we get from those little blobs to boulders and pebbles, because I, I don't know if you've, you've, you've ever tried um, making a snowball, you've, you've got two lumps of snow, one in each hand, you squash them together, you have a bigger snowball, but you can't make a bigger rock that way. 
Mm. If you have a rock in each hand and you smash them together, you're all, all you're left with is either a rock in each hand or if the rock breaks, you're left with a whole bunch of gravel. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to work out how these processes work. We know they have to work because we have planets, but quite how it happens is, is still very much a, an open question. And there's so many of those mysteries about Mars itself. And you, you walk through the, the evolutionary history of the planet. And again, I was just stunned by how much we've been able to figure out from Earth. Well, we, I say we, but really <laughs> the, the astrophysicists and cosmologists and planetary scientists that are looking at data and how much has been figured out from remote observations. It's, it's quite remarkable. And I'm assuming that much of this has come recently with all the landers and rovers. Most of it has, but yeah, I mean, you have to remember that we didn't really know anything about Mars or the surface of Mars until the Mariner probes in the, in the 1970s. They were the first ones to get proper pictures of the surface. Um, and it's only since then that our understanding of, of anything at all about Mars has come about. I mean, we just, we knew it was red. Um, people used to think that there were sort of canal, uh, uh, which was, you know, uh, either canals or channels on the surface of Mars. We knew it had ice caps. Uh, and that was literally it. We didn't know anything else about the surface of Mars. The more we look, the more detail we have. Um, and, and the most recent uh, photograph, a lot of this is done from um, um, orbiting satellites with big cameras uh, that, that reveal, I think we're down to almost the same resolution uh, on Mars that we can now get on Earth. And, and it's, it's astonishing, you can, you, can, you can pick out individual boulders um, with the, the latest probes. You can, and yeah, the satellites go overhead, you can see them on the surface. Um, you can see the parachute where, where, where it discarded the parachute. You can see the uh, frame with the, of the retro rockets on the sky crane, and you can see the heat shields on the surface that we've just littered, not all the surface of Mars, but if you know where to look, you can see that the debris that we've left on Mars, tire tracks and, and everything. <laughs> and, and we can spot these things now. So the amount of information that we have about Mars is enormous. The and number have, of Yeah, and you have processed a lot of that information and encapsulated it really nicely in this book and there's just so much i know we can't we can only touch on a few high points and you've just mentioned a couple things that i wanted to talk about like for instance it's the red planet and tell us why it's red right so mars is made up mainly uh, uh, the bulk of it is just made up of lavas um, and if we know anything about lavas, lavas are dark rocks. They're mainly black, um, mainly sort of fine-grained basalts and things like that. Now, we believe that that's what most of Mars is made of. Uh, everything from the crust to the southern highlands, there are some sedimentary rocks, there are clays, there are sandstones and, and other bits and pieces like that, but it's mainly 
lavas. Now, how do you turn a black lava into a red dust? Well, you assume, okay, well, yeah, we can we can mix it with water and we can mix it with air and we can we can turn those dark iron minerals and we can turn them red. There is a problem that was was brilliantly described as you can't turn things rusty without oxygen. And Mars has never had any free oxygen in its atmosphere whatsoever. So Mars shouldn't be red. But a recent experiment has shown that if you take those dark iron minerals, the magnetites, and you put them in a tube and you just shake them and you shake them and you shake them and you shake them, you can literally rearrange the atomic structure of that, of that mineral and turn it into hematite, which has one more oxygen than magnetite does. And hematite is red. Now, this takes millions of years, millions and millions of years. But the one thing that Mars has is time. So over the course of the entire history of Mars, Mars has very slowly and very gradually been turning red. And that sense of time is something that comes through really well in the book, because you start with the formation of the planet billions of years ago and walk through the evolutionary change from when it was a warm, wet world. And I was surprised also to learn how much water is still on Mars. When Mars was young, um, and we're talking sort of, if, if, the, if the life of Mars is four and a half billion years old, Mars had an ocean for probably between 4.3 billion years up to three and a half billion years ago, maybe. Big ocean. And all of that water ended up going somewhere. And we have to budget for, for that. Some of it is, is obviously, it's, it's been lost. The, the atmosphere gets stripped away and we've lost a lot of it to space. But a lot of it has ended up being frozen. Mars is a particularly broken planet. There are deep cracks in the crust and the crust hasn't really moved anywhere for almost the entire life of Mars. So those the water has gone through those cracks and it's in the crust, it's in the deep crust. So there is frozen water, not just deep underground, but all the way up to the surface. The ice caps are the most visible part of, of that water layer. Um, but there are places on Mars where you can, you can literally dig a shovel in and half of what you dig out of the sap of the soil on Mars will be water. And it goes way deep too. It's not just a thin layer, but you say in some places it's many kilometers deep. Oh, absolutely. Um, when Mars started to lose its atmosphere and it got cold, uh, and we're not just talking cold, cold, we're talking permafrost cold here. And the, the ocean freezes out from, from the top to the bottom uh, and it just kept on getting colder and colder and colder so any water that was trapped in the crust at that point um, the the permafrost we're used to permafrost layers in, in places like you know Alaska and Siberia being you know, several meters deep until 
the, the ground warms it sufficiently so that you've got a hard ice crust um, that's floating on, on a more liquid um, surface underneath. But Mars's permafrost goes all the way down uh, until it meets the residual heat coming out from the, um, the core of the planet. So, so you know, we could have permafrost that is, is two, three, four, five kilometers deep, uh, you know, three miles down. Um, that's 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 properly cold, and the reason it's managed to get that far is because it's been it's been cold on and off on Mars for for three billion years. Right. So much for um, <laughs> making successful settlements there in a very easy fashion because of that cold, and also because of the dust. Uh, and you had mentioned dust earlier, and this is another phenomenon that was novel to me: the ubiquity and the fineness of the dust and the problems that that would cause if, to, to any potential travelers and even probably to our equipment there. Oh, the, the dust is genuinely a, a formidable foe. Uh, it's already seen off one of our landers. Um, it, uh, it was basically, it was in a dust storm. It got coated, the solar panels were coated with dust and it just stopped working there. There wasn't any daylight getting to it at all. It ran its batteries down and it just died, the poor thing. Um, <laughs> but the, because the atmosphere is, is very thin, um, I mean, we think you know, the, the atmosphere at the top of Everest is, is, is you know, it's, it's terrible, um, but it's, the atmosphere there is about 30% of, of what the pressure is at sea level. Um, Mars is less than 1% of, of an atmosphere. It's uh, the average um, atmospheric pressure at sea level is 1,016 millibars. On Mars, the average pressure is 6 millibars. Mm. So the, the atmosphere is very tenuous. But when the wind on Mars blows, it still picks up the dust which must mean that the dust is incredibly fine. Um, and we're talking almost a, a, a nanomaterial here. Um, so this dust, if, it's, if it collects, it can flow, it can stick to everything. Um, so it's going to get into machinery. It's going to coat the surface of, of everything that it, it touches. Um, and there, there are places on Mars where you can still see the bedrock. Uh, and there are places on Mars where there are literally sand dunes that are made of this dust material. Um, and the problem, sorry, and the problem for, for, for anyone going to Mars is that they are inevitably going to take it inside their settlements with them. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 And, and they're going to end up breathing it in, they're going to end up eating it. Um, and, and this dust may not be the best thing for, for our lungs. Right, right. Yeah, you definitely mentioned that there is um, some toxic material throughout the rocky crust, and that would be a, a major issue for potential travelers there. Yes, there, there are chlorine compounds in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, in the soil of Mars. Um, so, I mean, I'm afraid that the, the, the scene in The Martian, 
where where <laughs> a hero is growing potatoes in marsh soil. Right, right. Um, they, you, I mean, the the good thing is is that the perchlorates which are in the soil are are washable out. They're soluble in water, so you could wash them out. Um, but the bad news is is that they are also soluble in water, um, which means that anything grow the in in Martian soil, which hasn't been cleaned, is also going to take up those perchlorates. And since you mentioned oceans and, you know, Everest being so far above sea level, that's another weird thing about Mars that I want you to talk a little bit about. We can't really talk about sea level on Mars because there's no sea, but there's this really weird thing, again, I had never heard of it, that one hemisphere, the, the southern hemisphere, do I have this right, it's much higher than the northern hemisphere? That is absolutely correct, and that's, that's one of the other, that's one of the things that we only discovered when we when we basically we took a laser altimeter to Mars and we put it in orbit, and we got a a relief map of Mars. So before that point, we we kind of assumed that you know half of it is definitely more rocky and more knobbly and more heavily cratered. That's the south. And half of Mars, the north, is relatively flat and smooth. But what we discovered was that the, the north of Mars is around a mile to two miles lower than the south of Mars. And there is a line that you can draw roughly around the middle of Mars, around the equator, that marks that line between the high south and the low north. So when Mars had an ocean, almost all of the water was in the northern hemisphere. You had this northern hemisphere ocean that was that stretched literally from one side of the planet to the other across the top of the pole. And it would have been too warm for there to be a, an ice cap at those times. So you could have literally have sailed from, from one side of the planet to the other going over the top. Well, and that's another very clever thing that you do in the book is you create these imaginary scenarios for here you are perhaps sailing across the Martian ocean or collecting a sample from a volcano. And so for the, the listeners that want a resolution to the mystery of that weird planetary shape and more of these imaginary scenarios, uh, I will link to your book on our website, but we'll have to leave it for now because we're out of time. Very great to talk to you. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Simon Morton talking about his new book, The Red Planet, A Natural History of Mars. In addition to his scientific and journalistic career, Simon writes science fiction. To find out more about his book, check out the link in the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I produce this week's show, and I'm also the executive producer. Thanks to Shelley Schlender and Joel Parker for headlines. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Gustav Horst's Planet Symphony, The Mars Movement. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KG News Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.